0: You are now listening to the January 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible Sermon and Respectable Sins. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible.
1: Hello, Harnesville Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Justin Kong with Let's Read the Bible. How much do you think God has sovereignty over our lives? Of course, most of us might say, God is a sovereign over all parts of my life. But is the way we live our lives truly prove that God is indeed sovereign over our lives just as we confess with our mouths? How can we prove that we believe God has sovereignty over all parts of our lives? Verse 3 from Proverbs chapter 16 that we are going to read together today is a very well-known verse. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Quite often, we wonder what it means to leave our lives to God's sovereignty. Some of us think leaving our lives to God's sovereignty means that we do not have to do anything and just let God lead our lives. Some others think that they will do what they can do on their own and consult God when there are things that they cannot do on their own. What about you? How are you understanding the saying to leave our lives to God's sovereignty? What and to what extent are you leaving your lives to God? Commit your work to the Lord. The root meaning of commit means to roll. Just as rolling a rock, it means to roll our affairs and bring them to the Lord. But there is a very important word in this verse. What does it say to commit? That's right, it says to commit your work. Our work. What is our work? Does work mean what we have to do to make money? our affairs at home, church, or workplace? Does it mean events like marriage, birthday celebrations, inviting neighbors after moving to a new house, or important company activities? Are these the work that we need to leave to God's sovereignty? Well, the exact meaning of work in today's proverb encompasses everything. Especially, the meaning of work in Hebrew is everything that humans attempt. So when we directly translate the verse, commit your work to the Lord, it means, Roll all your affairs that you are attempting to the Lord God. This does not mean that we do nothing with what we are planning to do and wait for God to do something about them after we leave them to God's sovereignty. It means we bring our affairs and what we are planning to do to God and ask for His will and do the best we can according to His guidance. It is not about trying to accomplish our work on our own or move in the direction we want. It is about bringing our work in front of God. Ask what His will is about them. Which direction is the right direction, the holy one and good one? So we acknowledge that God is the one who fulfills all the work and we obey him. When we leave all of our work to God's sovereignty completely, we will also be able to leave the results to God as well. The way for us to prove that we believe God is sovereign over our lives completely in our lives is if our lives show that we trust God by consulting God in any and all situations move forward afterwards, and accept the results from then. Even if what we plan does not go the way we desired and does not bring the result that we wished, when we still trust God without complaints and despair, then we prove ourselves to be the ones who accept God's sovereignty completely. I hope we will not try to use God to fulfill our own desires. Rather, I hope our desires become the work that we can bring to God so that they will become instruments in fulfilling God's goodwill. Let's read Proverbs chapter sixteen verses one to thirty three together. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, inquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king, his mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. A worker's appetite works for him, his mouth urges him on. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Whoever who winks his eyes plans dishonest thing, he who purses his lips brings evil to pass. Gray hair is a crown of glory it is gained in a righteous life. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We just read Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 to 33 together.
2: will help me scale these walls. I'll see the dawn of the rising sun. The Lord is my salvation.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary, Phoenix, in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the greatest wonder of all. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
3: Well, let's open our Bible to Acts chapter 19. At the end of his second missionary journey, Paul had briefly visited Ephesus, and this is where this incident uh, that Luke is telling us about takes place. Verse 21 is where we'll start. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Often, Timothy and Erastus are shown to be Paul's uh, personal assistants. He needed help. And it was good that these two brothers could be with him. The Holy Spirit led him to go away for a while. But at the beginning of his third missionary journey, Paul traveled back to Ephesus. And, and this time, he's going to preach and he's going to teach for. Over three years. Now that's cool. You know, be able to really settle down. You think about this guy who's been a church planter. And like with the believers in Thessalonica, he was only there just a brief time. And had to teach and run. But here he's able to go deep into the word and teach and preach. Preaching is the declaring of the gospel. I look at preaching more as evangelism. Whereas teaching is what we're doing right now. Maybe last Sunday would be preaching, you know, more evangelistic, sharing the gospel. Whereas today where it's preaching, so the apostle Paul's doing that. And remarkable things happen, remember? In Ephesus, uh, the, the, uh, in chapter 19, the first part, uh, we had these men who were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And reasoning about the kingdom of God, and we bumped into the seven sons of Sceva. Remember those guys? Yeah, and they things didn't go well for them. But then we also saw this great victory of people giving up their sin. And verse 20 says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. How much? Mightily. Mightily. So the Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, has empowered these people, and now the Word of God is prevailing mightily. So now here's some background to prep us for what's ahead. I, I want to tell you a little bit about Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a beautiful place with a population of more than 250,000, which made it like the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It's a huge place, huge dense populations. The general lay of the land, it was in a beautiful place, just a gorgeous uh, area with mountains surrounding. Paul would have often walked through the beautiful gate of Hercules. I can imagine being there and, you know, visiting the ruins and walking through the same gate that Paul did. How That's pretty cool, huh? Many wealthy people lived in the city. and Archaeologists have uncovered some of the the houses, you know, mansions that these uh, wealthy people lived in. The city still has some of its beautiful roads intact, uh, still paved. You know, it's it's just laid out with the pillars on either side. This basically a you know, market with underneath um, the pillars there would have been all sorts of goods. It was like the supermarket there. But you also need to know that Ephesus had some ruins amenities, the city had the third largest library in the ancient world. I don't know what how many square feet your house is. Does anybody have a 2,000-square-foot home? Anybody have a 2,000-square-foot home, or more? Well, 12,000 scrolls were kept in that 2,000-square-foot library. I'm just saying, that's, that's a lot of stuff in there. And if you needed to find a restroom, the city offered a state-of-the-art public <laughs> latrine system. No kidding, no kidding. This one has 48 places, seats, carved out of marble, and uh, an uninterrupted flow of water ran underneath. So it was just like continually flushing. And these were places where people just didn't duck in and out. There were no dividers. People just sat and talked. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Go check it out. I studied all this week about this, this stuff. <laughs> People would sit and talk, some for hours. Historians are talking. I'm not kidding you. Historians are saying this, not me. And uh, they gossip, and even some business deals, would a lot of business, <laughs> I know, but it's true. It's true. And during the cool winter months, they were heated. The marble was heated by an underground heating system so that the little seat was warm. So you thought they were so you know, primitive, hardly. Do you have a warm seat at home? They've even unearthed a paving stone with an f- outline of a foot carved into it, pointing the way to the world's oldest profession. Now let's look at verses 23 and through 24 right now. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning what? Do you know who the way? That's us, right? For A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Artemis was uh, the goddess of that city. I'll tell you more about her in a minute. These craftsmen made little Artemis figurines and statues. You could buy one to put on the uh, dashboard of your chariot, you know. (laughs) little medallions you could sell. You put, you know, the little medallion with their image on it around your neck to help keep you safe, to ward off the evil. And he and other craftsmen made a good living manufacturing these religious souvenirs. If you've ever been to, you know, any place you visit, there's always these souvenir shops, right? And sometimes you may go to a religious, I mean, if you go to Israel, there's all sorts of shops around the holy sites selling souvenirs of things. And so these guys were in that business, and they were making a lot of money doing this. But for some time, Demetrius was trying to balance his accounts, and he realized that his profit margin was not what it had been. In fact, his profits were steadily decreasing. And uh, he's thinking, well, if things keep declining like this, I'm going to go bankrupt. He seems to be the very first one to sound the alarm about the followers of Jesus. It's obvious who is to blame the followers of the way. Well, aren't we Christians always a problem? But in some ways, this is very true. No one had forgotten the influence that the followers of Jesus had on those magicians and the sorcerers and the evil workers who burned $14 million of their magic books. You remember that? They hadn't forgot about that. And they're probably thinking, well, if this goes on, they're going to get our images and they're just going to burn everything we have. And so this, Demetrius sounded the warning. Verse 25, then he gathered together with the workmen and similar traits, says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth not making a living, they're rich. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Can you imagine that? (laughs) The gods made with hands are not gods. I couldn't help but think about what Jeremiah the prophet had to say about this. Jeremiah 10, verses 1. Hear the word of the Lord and what he speaks to you, O Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not act like the other nations who try to read their future in the stars. Do not be afraid of their predictions, even though other nations are terrified by them. Their ways are futile and foolish. Like they cut down a tree and a craftsman carves an idol. They decorate it with gold and silver and then they fasten it securely with nails so it won't fall over. That's what you need is a God that you gotta you know, make sure that you know, it's not gonna fall over. Make sure that thing's standing up straight. Their gods are like helpless scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. People who worship idols are stupid and foolish. The things they worship are made of wood. They bring beaten sheets of silver and gold and they give these materials to skillful craftsmen who make their idols. Then they dress these gods in royal blue and purple robes made by expert tailors. But the Lord is the only true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king." Say to those who worship other gods, your so-called gods who did not make the heavens and earth will vanish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power and he preserves it by his wisdom. The whole human race is foolish and has no knowledge. Craftsmen are disgraced by the idols they make for their carefully shaped works are a fraud. These idols have no breath or power. Idols are worthless. They are ridiculous lies. On the day of reckoning, they will all be destroyed. But the God of Israel is no idol. He is the creator of everything that exists. Amen. He's saying that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. Okay, well, now back to Demetrius' worries. Uh, Let's go back again to verse 26. And there is danger, he says. Well, this would be verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute and we'll lose money, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, who's also known as Diana in the ancient, two names, Greek and Roman name. The temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Artemis, or the goddess Diana, was a patron goddess of Ephesus. She was a sex goddess depicted as a grotesque image of a woman covered with breast, symbolizing fertility. Her worship included all kinds of immoral sex acts, impurity, fornication. It, of course, was a very popular religion. If you can do all those things in the name of, of God and religion, wow. But uh, horrible, horrible worship of that goddess. We've seen enough of her. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. He mentions the Temple it was supported by 127 great 60-foot-high marble pillars. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, a masterpiece of architecture and ancient craftsmanship. Inside of it was a huge image of Artemis. They believed that there was a meteor that fell from the sky and... They found this, and and it looked, if you had a real imagination, maybe like a woman, a grotesque woman. And so they carved it up a little bit more, and this is the initial prototype for what you saw, this idol. And so supposedly she came down from heaven, and, and she is among the people there. So there was terrible immorality going on, but... Business was declining. The revenues going to the temple were declining. Why? Because lonely, guilty, fear ridden people were finding a new life and hope in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Their lives were being transformed. When the gospel was presented, people got saved and they stopped buying idols. It's obvious what we're seeing here, you guys. We're seeing how the gospel changes culture. It's exactly what we're seeing happening here. People's lives are being changed, and it was affecting the economy. There was, there was no kind of an agenda. It was a gospel that was changing the economy. You understand? Christians didn't say, okay, we need to, and I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not going anywhere with this. I, do not read it politically, don't. But they weren't putting a boycott system together. and were doing anything. They're just getting saved and was changing things. During the great Welsh Revival, uh, the early 1900s, people were getting saved and many of these people were coal miners, a huge revival. All the crime stopped, the policemen had nothing to do. All the bars and saloons closed. And the coal miners who had problems working because the donkeys didn't understand directions because they always directed the donkeys with swear words, and the donkeys didn't recognize anything but those words. <laughs> I mean, it was transformed. Did, did I read 100,000 people came to Christ during that revival? I think I read that last night. I think that was the number. David Guzik says Christianity should affect the economy. Amen? Not just personally. Our, my economy should affect me, right? And how I handle my money, not just personally, but in a community as well. This effect will not always be welcomed. In Ephesus, business was down at the pagan shrines because of the transforming work of the Jesus Christ. This happens again and again as Jesus does his work. For example, a Roman official named Pliny later wrote a letter to another official named Trajan describing how people were not going to shrines anymore because of Christian influence. Pliny wanted to know what he should do about it. This is how we ought to endeavor to change our city, amen? It's like, why aren't people coming to my business anymore? Why aren't I making money? What's the problem? Man, people are getting saved. Christians are coming alive. Christians aren't compromising anymore. They're not involved in this junk anymore. C.H. Spurgeon, who is a hero primarily of pastors, <laughs> but he pastored one of the world's largest churches over 100 years ago. He said he lived in England. His church was in London. And he said, I wish the gospel would affect the trade of London. I wish it might. There are some trades that need affecting, need to be cut a little shorter, not by an act of Parliament. Let acts of parliament leave us alone. We can fight that battle alone, but it may come to an end by the spread of the gospel. I have no faith in any reformation that does not come through men's hearts being changed. Amen, Brother Charles Virgin, amen. Now, the incident continues, verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you say that loud for me? I can't say it. My voice is shot. Just say it once. I know you don't believe it, but go ahead, say it. Just for the effect. What? Praise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you sound like a bunch of Christians sounding like trying to be pagans. I'm not going to have you do it again. Okay, that was okay. Um, yeah, but they're chanting this. It says, Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of. They're just shouting this over for two hours. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. They rushed into the Ephesus Great Theater. This theater, look, it was absolutely colossal, it seated 25,000 people. And so they all rush into this theater. The noise must have been deafening. One commentator says the acoustics of the theater are excellent even today. I don't know if you've ever been in in one of these or at one of these ancient theaters. They are, I know there's one in Israel, there's some other places. But you can say a word, I can talk just like this, and on the very back row, of that. You can hear me clearly, absolutely clearly. But they even had bronze and clay things hanging on the wall to amplify the sound even more. So can you imagine the roar of the crowd? Great is Artemis of the fusion. Great is Artemis. Great for two hours. Can you imagine being a Christian outside of all of that? You could hear it for miles around. Can you imagine being a Christian all of that, thinking, well, Lord, God, protect us. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being there? Verse 29, and the city was filled with confusion. They all rushed together into the theater, dragging along with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Paul was like, whoa! Oh, 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 there's a crowd. Let me preach they <laughs> said, no way, you are not going in there. Yes, I want to go in there. And then some of the officials in the city sent messages to him and said, you stay out of there, do not go in there. So when Paul wanted to go among them, verse 30, disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are the city officials who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. He would have been torn apart. Now, some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they come together. A crowd draws a crowd, right? What are we here for? I don't know. Just start yelling. What's everybody chanting? Okay, let's get it. Let's say it. Why are we here? I don't know. Just come on. Get with it, man. Why are we here? Just get with it. Come on, everybody. And that, that's the way the world is, right? The world doesn't know why it's here. People don't know why they are here. But they just hop on whatever seems to go in fast or whatever seems to be the loudest thing. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. So this Jewish guy named Alexander was going up to the, the platform, the stage, and he just wanted everybody to know that, hey, it's not, our Jew, it's not us Jewish people that are causing your problems. Paul, we don't count him as a Jew anymore. So that's what he was going to do, but that he didn't pull that off, did he? The, verse thirty-three: Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, "Great as Artemis of the Ephesians!" And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing in that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers against our goddess." You know, Paul didn't ever, he wasn't harsh when he's sharing the gospel with people. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. And there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, uh, he dismissed the assembly. And you have to understand, he's saying, you know, this isn't the way that we solve our problems. But he says, if this gets reported to Rome, this riot, we are in danger of losing our special free city status. You'll lose your citizenships. And Rome may come in here with an iron fist, as they have in the past, and just start killing people. Get out of the theater. Everybody leaves. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is all that is left of the great temple of Artemis. they had to dig that up and stick it up. It wasn't there. <laughs> no one worships Artemis anymore. Most people would not even recognize the name, but the name of Jesus is known around the world. Amen. <laughs> He's loved by billions of people. <clears throat> Seven wonders of the world have disappeared and are in ruins, but the wonderful one, Jesus Christ, he still stands. But there's another wonder. Sometimes I think, you know, I, I've studied history a lot. I think, oh, why wasn't this? Like, why wasn't Solomon's temple, one of the, or, you know, the temple of Jesus' time, one of the seven wonders of the world? I, I think of some what which should have been on that list. Maybe there should have been eight or nine wonders of the world. Why seven? But there's another one that didn't make it on the list, and it's the greatest wonder of all. You know what it is? It's the wonder of grace. It's the wonder of grace. It outshines any of those seven other uh, wonders that people build themselves. Grace, grace is something that God offers. It's something that God has. In Ephesians, the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. The wonder of grace is that God has chosen you, that you are wanted, and that you are loved. Chosen, wanted, loved. There's problems for people. I don't feel special. I don't feel wanted. I don't feel loved. I don't think that anybody would choose me if they really knew what I am inside. If they really knew what I do, if my secrets were out, people would not like me. But God chose you. And the amazing thing, the grace thing about this is God chose you not being shocked when he finds these things. God shows you knowing these things about you. Amen. God shows you that way. God wants you. God wants you. The creator of the universe that we read about, the one who created it all, wants you. Why? Because He loves you, and he's a God of grace. And God's love for you isn't just passive, isn't this a, a passive, you know, I love, I love, it's active. That's why you're here today, it's because of God's active love. I just want to say this, Lord, put this on my heart, a good God sees you in trouble, he knows that you've been thinking about suicide. You may be watching, Lord speaking to you, there's somebody here, you know, people are Thinking about suicide are pretty quiet about it. But he's made sure you are here today. So you got to take God's hand. Listen, here's a word from the Lord for you. God says, I am the Lord, your God, who holds you by your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. It's not the way to turn. You've been doubting God's love for you, and you're thinking... God, I've got to hear from you. I've got to hear from you today. And if I don't hear from you today, I just know this is not for real. I need you to speak personally to me. Let me see. this is the personal to you right now. God put you on my heart last night. I'm thinking, who is this, Lord? I don't know who you are, but I know God brought you here today because he needed you to know that he knows you need to hear that this is real. It's real. You're here. And here's a word from the Lord to you. He says, I have loved you with a love that lasts forever. And so with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. You're here. You're considering stepping out on your spouse and um, abandoning your marriage. I want to say stop. Stop. Take God's hand take God's hand, a walk in obedience and seek reconciliation. There's power. God will save your marriage. How many here, God saved your marriage? Let me see. God saves marriages. He can turn things around. You've been wounded maybe and betrayed by a friend and you are struggling with bitterness. This is a hard thing. God sees you. God knew you'd be here and God holds out his hand to you. This is the one who knows what it's like to be wounded and betrayed by a friend. Yes? You just take God by the hand right now, and I believe that you're set free from that in Jesus' name. I believe, I know the Lord can lift this stuff just in an instant. I know he's lifted that from me. I know he can lift that from you in Jesus' name. Just surrender that. God knows you don't want it anymore. Who wants bitterness? Who wants to hang on to that stuff? Just offer it to Jesus, and he'll take it away. You can't get over the guilt of what you did when you were 19. You're here. And I would take God's hand right now and know that your guilt is taken away and you are forgiven. The Lord Jesus, he says, you are forgiven. Jesus Christ will accept you. He'll forgive you right now no matter what you have done, for all that you've done. All your guilt can be taken away in an instant. You just need to take God by the hand. He wants to bring you into his family. Greatest wonder of the world is the wonder of grace, that that God has chosen you, that God loves you, that God wants you. It's the greatest wonder in the world, and it's a wonder that is not going to disintegrate and someday we'll find in ruins. This wonder... This life that God gives to us is everlasting. It is forever.
4: Still Fail the end draws near, and my time has come. Still, my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years, and then forever.
0: Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Respectable Sins.
5: Listeners, I am Terry, the host of the Christians Who Read book. We are currently discussing the book, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate, written by Jerry Bridges. Starting with this third session, we begin to delve more deeply into the specific sins of the heart that we tend to tolerate, but we need to overcome. Today, I would like to talk about reverence and lack thereof. When you hear the word reverence, what comes to mind? Reverence often conjures up the images of someone praying in holy places, exuding unusually high level of emotional stability, and being detached from worldly desires, all of which project the state of deep spiritual meditation. In contrast, lack of reverence conjures up the images of disrespect, aloofness, and moral decay, all of which lack seriousness and earnestness. As such, the term reverence is not confined to Christianity, but is often used in other philosophical or moral contexts. For example, the Chinese character that represents reverence reflects the state of respect and solemnness. In Korea, when saluting the national flag or during a Memorial Day event, hosts often use the word reverence. The host might say, we will sing the national anthem with reverence, or let's have a moment of silence with a reverent heart. Interestingly, many churchgoers demonstrate similar reverence in their worship and spiritual lives and also by avoiding irreverent behaviors. Therefore, most believers don't perceive themselves as being irreverent. How about you? If someone were to ask you, have you been irreverent? How would you answer? Would you say, yes, I agree, I lack reverence? Or would you hesitate thinking, no, I am not irreverent? In general, you might find it rather easy to assert that you are not irreverent. Then, how might you respond if the question was phrased differently? If asked, are you a reverent believer, how would you respond? It might be more challenging to confirm with confidence that you have been reverent. Perhaps this is because you genuinely don't perceive yourself as having been reverent Or if you do, you might feel hesitant to declare it to others because you are concerned about sounding a bit presumptuous. This type of reasoning might suggest that there are gray areas in whether or not being reverent. However, in reality, we are either reverent or irreverent. What does the Bible say? In his book, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate, Jerry Bridges explains that irreverence reflects our attitude towards God. He defines irreverence as living without much thought about God, His will, His glory, and our dependency on Him. When we live without considering God at the center of our lives, as if God and His will, glory, and our reliance on Him don't matter, we are being irreverent. Were you aware of this? Jerry points out the obvious first, that many non-believers or secularists who do not acknowledge God are undoubtedly irreverent. Then he points out the less obvious, Even among those who claim to believe in God, many are surprisingly irreverent despite their moral uprightness. People who believe that there is no God may fit the definition of irreverence, but among believers who claim to trust in God, there are also many irreverent individuals who live as if God does not exist. According to Jerry, these individuals may receive respect and praise, show kindness and politeness, attend church and volunteer regularly. Still, if they live as if God doesn't exist, they are irreverent. They don't think about God daily and act as if God is absent, demonstrating reverence neither in thoughts nor in their actions. If they live each day without considering God and behave as if he doesn't exist, they are not necessarily immoral people, but they are irreverent. A reverent person approaches everything with a prayerful heart seeking God's guidance in all endeavors, decisions, and outcomes. This person makes plans and acknowledging God, saying, Lord, today I plan to do this and that at church. Guide me with your wisdom and lead me according to your will. If this is not right, please intervene. I entrust this plan to your hands. Or, Lord, I am planning to visit Korea. When would be a good time to visit? I have things to take care of in my mind, and you will give me wisdom and guidance. This attitude represents reverence, according to Jerry. Psalm chapter 16 verse 9 says, The heart of a man plans its way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Living with the awareness of God's presence, seeking his guidance, and entrusting our plans to him is at the heart of a reverent life. This way of life glorifies God. The Apostle Paul's instructions, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, clearly lays out the principles that could guide us in our reverent lives. Are we just like the non-believers and secular colleagues when we merely work for our own benefits and for promotions and higher salaries? Shouldn't we aim to please God in everything we do and exalt Him before others? Doing so would please God and glorify Him. That would be what it means to live for God's glory. That would exemplify the essence of a reverent person. How consciously and prayerfully do we glorify God in our words and actions? Are we often forgetful of God in our everyday living? Our lack of desire to develop an intimate relationship with God reveals our irreverent nature. Do we crave God like deer pants for the water? Do we earnestly seek Him? We would not be earnestly seeking God when we do not rely on God or do not live in His presence. The lack of reverence connects all these aspects together. Jerry suggests that irreverence is a fundamental sin, more than even pride. When we live every moment acknowledging that everything we have, our existence, and our accomplishments are by God's grace, we keep pride away from us. Similarly, if we are conscious that God hears everything we say, we would likely not utter unkind or malicious words. The root of these sins, like pride and unkindness, is irreverence. Such irreverence would lead to gossip, hatred, dissatisfaction, and complaints. By pursuing reverence, we try to live in God's presence every moment. We are accountable before God, utterly reliant on Him. When we remember this, we naturally lead a reverent life. What about you? Are you living a reverent life, or are you irreverent? Now that you understand what reverence is, shouldn't you strive to live a life of reverence? 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly men. Rather, train yourself for godliness. With that, we conclude our discussion here at the Christians Who Read Books.